Revelation chapter 1 while you're turning there. Revelation chapter 1. Good to have Brother Jeremiah Hart with us this evening. Our church is no stranger to the Hart family. They've been here for our Jubilee and family scenes and he's in evangelism. He's just in town for a couple of days on business, side business. And uh, good to have him in church tonight. Revelation chapter number 1. And uh, we started a couple of weeks ago uh, this series on revelation and prophetic scripture. Uh, using revelation as a base, but giving ourselves the latitude in time to step out of revelation and fill in the gaps with other scriptures in Ezekiel and Daniel and, and uh, what have you. And so we are in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 9. And uh, just the way the service has gone, and I love it. When the Lord dictates to a service. Amen. He says, I know you have a schedule, but I'm going to have my own schedule. I love that. But just the nature of the service, I'm going to have to go through this. I'll cut a lot of it out and just kind of give you the highlights tonight. But Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, under Ephesus, under Smyrna, under Pergamos, under Thyatira, under Sardis, and under Philadelphia, and under Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like a fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest on my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. I know I've told you several times the story of when we built this auditorium and one of the members that was here thin volunteered to dress up the baptistry dressing rooms. I've told that story a number of times because I love to tell the story. It's funny to me. His idea was to go out and get a picture of Jesus and to hang a picture of Jesus in each of these baptistry rooms back here. And 
He hadn't been saved too long, and so he went out. The only picture he was familiar with, the long-haired, hippie-fied Jesus. I didn't want to offend him, being a relatively new convert, and so we left Jesus hanging in the baptistry rooms for a little while until we could find a way to get him down. And that's probably the image that most people have of Jesus. But we know that that is not an accurate portrayal of what he looks like. It's interesting that nowhere in the gospels, nowhere in the scriptures do we have a description of what Jesus looked like while on earth. As far as I can find, there was no clues to how tall, how short, how thin, how heavy, nothing like that. We, we, we do know that there is a typical look that Middle Eastern men have, the swarthy, dark-skinned, black hair. And so he probably looked something like that because he was a Jew and, 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 and what have you. But, but we have a description in, in Revelation 1 of what Jesus looks like now. This is him in his glorified, ascended state. John has been told to write the things which he saw. And the first thing that he saw was the glorified Christ. There are actually three different visions of the Lord in the book of Revelation. There is the vision of the Son of Man standing in the midst of the churches. In chapter 5, there will be a vision of the Lamb in heaven opening the book of judgment from the throne of God. And then at the end of the book, there will be a vision of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returning to earth to establish his millennial kingdom. So while most people come to Revelation to see the future, John still hadn't told us anything about the future. I announced three weeks ago that we would be embarking upon the study of prophetic events. So far we have not gotten to any prophetic events. And I hope that I don't lose you before we get to the real interesting stuff, you know, the dragons and the scorpions and the army of 200 million and all of that. I, I hope that you'll stay with me because we will eventually get to that. But, but evidently, evidently what the scripture wants us to see in light of, of end times is not so much a chronology as it is to see the Christ. It's more important to scripture that we focus on him than any event and that is the way that we ought to proceed. So taking this first vision that, that John had, I, I want you to notice first of all where John was. He says in verse nine, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. This is the only book, by the way, where John identifies himself by name. In the Gospel of John, he always refers to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. In the epistles, he refers to himself as the elder. But now he describes himself as your brother and companion in tribulation. It was a time of religious persecution, some more severe than, than other areas, but all of them lived with a threat over their head. And John does not remind them of his tribulation to elicit sympathy from them, but to tell them that there is something that we share together. We are united in our sufferings. Yeah. We may be separated by this body of water, but I am your companion together 
during this time we are joined together in spirit and you don't have to be standing next to someone to be their companion. I put this down in my notes as a question, but I really have the answer. And the question that I was going to ask you tonight was, I wonder, are we truly brothers and sisters, companions with our brothers and sisters in tribulation? And tonight you demonstrated that you are. I thank God for that. It's good to have somebody beside you. Amen. Whether in body or in spirit, Amen. when you're going through tribulation. He says in verse nine that he was in the aisle that is called Patmos. Well, the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Isle of Patmos was a little island about 13 miles off the coast of Turkey, 10 miles long, six miles wide, volcanic island, rocky island. It was sparsely populated. The main attraction was a temple to Diana the goddess. And when John says that he was on the Isle of Patmos, he was not there on vacation. It was not a resort spot for retired preachers. During the first century Roman Emperors used it to exile political prisoners and that is why John was there. We don't know what kind of living arrangements that he had there. We don't know how harsh it was. Was he forced to work in the rock quarries and all the mines? We don't know that. All that we know that he was there under the edict of a man named Domitian. If I were to ask you to name a Roman emperor of the first century, many of you would immediately come up with the name Nero. Nero was a, Nero was a madman who literally fiddled, they say. Well, he didn't fiddle, but the saying is he fiddled while Rome burned and he used that to launch the first wave of 10 persecutions against the Christians. Nero, um, uh, when Nero died, Rome fell into a civil war. Four men claiming to be an emperor within a year, AD 69, known as the year of four emperors, four Roman emperors. And so Rome was under civil unrest and instability for some years. But in AD 81, Domitian, Domitian became the emperor. He was an emperor only for 15 years and was one of the most disliked emperors of the empire. I shared this with the guys in church history several weeks ago, so they'll be familiar with this, but, but the Jews had a tax that went all the way back to Exodus 30. It was a half shekel tax that, that was called the temple tax. Every male 20 years and older was to give this half shekel tax every year, and it was for the upkeep and the maintenance of the temple. Well, in AD 70, the Romans destroyed the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem, and the Romans knew about that tax. So they decided that they would keep that tax. They would force the Jews to pay that tax, even though there was no temple now to maintain. But they forced the Jews to pay that tax in retaliation for all their revolts, and they used that money to build a new temple to the god, uh, the, the, the uh, Jupiter, uh, the Roman god. Well, as time went on, the Romans thought we have a good idea because a politician never takes a tax away. So they decided to expand it, not just to males over 20, but to every Jew, man, woman, boy, and child. When Domitian came to the throne, he said, I'll, I'll extend it even further, not just to Jews, but everybody 
that, that, that practices the Jewish religion. And to him that meant Christianity. So now Christians are forced to pay this tax. Domitian passed a law that if you did not pay this tax, you could have your property confiscated. And if you reported a tax evader, then you could be rewarded with some of their property as a reward. And eventually it just got too burdensome and the Jews began to revolt against paying that tax. And that became the excuse that Domitian needed to begin to launch what was the third wave of persecution against the Christians. Domitian was the younger brother of Titus, the Roman general who destroyed Jerusalem. He became very suspicious, some say even paranoid later on in his life. Some people believed in that day that a bird's flight could predict the future. And somehow Domitian believed that ravens could foretell the future. All of the coins that they have found from that era that were minted by Domitian has a god on one side and a raven on the other side. So you have a leader of the known world, the world empire, the most powerful man in the world looking to ravens to find out about the future. Poor Christians who have a more sure word of prophecy. Domitian had an enormous ego problem. It was not unusual for the Roman Senate to deify their emperors, but they always did it after he died. But Domitian couldn't wait. He deified himself before he died, took on the title of our Lord and our God, and all of the edicts and all of the laws would begin, our Lord and our God. When Domitian died, the Senate rejoiced because they could not stand him. And the Roman Senate ordered that everything with his name, everything, all the inscriptions, everything with his name be burned and be destroyed. It's under this emperor that in A.D. 95 sent John to Patmos in exile. That's why he's there. So John says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now you'll notice that Spirit is capitalized, so it's referring to the Holy Spirit. But watch this. The Bible says that Christ, or that we are in Christ. I can't find anywhere where the Bible says that we are in the Holy Spirit. We understand that the Holy Spirit indwells us. We are in Christ positionally, and the Holy Spirit indwells us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's not what John says. He, he says, I was in the Spirit. I believe that John was transported temporarily to a supernatural state of mind, if you please, where God could show him things in the future. I'm reminded of Paul, who had been carried to another realm where he said he saw unspeakable words which are unlawful for a man to utter. So four times in the book of Revelation, John says, I was in the spirit, in the spirit. And then he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, the Lord's day. Now that could have reference to two things. First, the Lord's day could be a reference to Sunday because Sunday is the Lord's day. Would you agree with that? Say amen. amen. By the way, you may be surprised to know that Sunday is never called 
the Lord's day in the Bible. In the book of Acts, Christians began to meet on the first day of the week. Acts 20 and verse 7, upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him. They met on Sunday, the day of the resurrection, but it's never called the Lord's day. That's what we call it. It's always called the first day of the week. So a lot of people say that it was on Sunday. It was on Sunday, the Lord's Day, that John received this revelation. And that would make for very good preaching. Uh, but I think there is a, another idea that I lean more toward. Consider that John heard a voice on the Lord's Day. The voice was as a trumpet, as a trumpet. The trumpet is mentioned quite frequently in the Old Testament, and it is always in relation to Israel's worship and the future day of the Lord. But nowhere do you ever find the trumpet used in connection with Sunday worship. It could be that the Lord's day is what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord, the day that begins with the tribulation carries all the way to the millennial kingdom. We'll deal with that when we get there. And I lean toward that. When the Bible says I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, I believe that John was transported supernaturally into the future, into the day of the Lord to see what would transpire during that time. It is not that he saw the vision on a Sunday, but he's taken into the future to see what God was going to do, where John was. But then notice secondly, what John heard. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. I have a message that I preached from this several years ago. I preached it around the country a little bit. Two places at one time. I wanted to preach it tonight. I'm not going to preach that. But John learned that though he was in exile, he was not in isolation. I want to preach it, but I'm not. Though he could not get to the people that he loved, he discovered somebody had come to him. And he turned to see who had visited him. It was a thunderous voice, like, like a trumpet. There's a wonderful Bible study on trumpets in the Bible and how they're used to announce important events. Here's what the voice said in verse 11. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest right in a book, send it into the seven churches which are in Asia. The last time that you see the Apostle John in the book of Acts in Jerusalem is in Acts chapter 13. He disappears off the scene after that point. Early church historians say that John left Jerusalem in the late 60s of the first century, sometimes prior to the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. He came to Asia Minor, which is really another word for northern Turkey. That's Asia Minor. And he became the recognized leader among the churches of Asia that had been started either by Paul or influenced by Paul. And there was a group of seven churches in that region of the world that Christ is going to address the next two chapters to. The 
question very naturally arises as to why Christ chose those seven churches, seeing as there were other churches in the region at that time. The message of this book is not just for seven churches. It was intended for all churches of that time and for all churches of the future ages. And though there is a separate message for each congregation in the next chapter, the entire message was sent to all seven churches. The revelation is sent to the seven churches along with individual letters to each church. And just as Paul sent letters to seven churches, you can count them, so John sends a letter to seven churches. And it cannot be coincidence that these seven and only these seven are singled out to be the immediate recipients of this book. There are other churches in that region. They're not mentioned, though John surely knew them and they had problems just like these churches as, as well. Most commentators suggest that the reason for these seven churches is that there was a major trade route in Asia Minor and if you traveled it in this order, you would come to them in order and perhaps that is the reason why we have these seven churches, but that ignores that there were other churches on that route as well. So I, I don't know that that has anything to do with it. It's apparent that the book of Revelation is sent to these churches as representatives of these churches. These churches are not exclusive, they are representative. In church history, we are using these seven churches as an outline of church history. That's not the primary intent, so we're not going to discuss that here. But I believe that these seven churches, when we get into them, they will, you will see that they represent the conditions in each local church throughout different periods of history. And it's not without significance that there are exactly seven of these churches. Seven is found all over the book of Revelation. We'll see that as we get there. So where John was and what John heard. But I want you to notice thirdly, this is the bulk of the vision who John saw. It has been more than 60 years since John has seen Christ, but he has never seen him like this before. John was one of the very few to see the unveiled glory of Christ at the tribulation. We beheld his glory, but the description that he's gonna give now is far different than what he saw even on the Mount of Transfiguration. I've gotta to run to it quickly. But in verse 13, in the midst of the seven candles, golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. You're familiar with that title from the Gospels. 89 times Christ is called Son of Man. You might be interested in knowing that of the 89 times, 85 times, it is Christ using that for himself. It is his favorite title for himself. He refers to himself as Son of Man more than any other title. And someone says, well, Son of God refers to his deity, Son of Man refers to his humanity. However, in the book of Matthew, the Bible says that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin, that the Son of Man has the authority to command angels, that the Son of Man can raise the dead. That sounds like deity to me. Notice where Jesus stood. He says in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son 
of man. Look down at verse number 20. The last phrase, the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, I am skipping and slicing and dicing as I go along, all right? I wish, I, 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 we gotta keep the ball rolling, I understand. Let me just point, let me just point something out to you, all right? And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not gonna read too much into the text, but I want you to notice that John had to turn to see Christ standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks which were behind him. They're behind him, he had to turn to see. And his position speaks of Christ's relationship to the church on earth. Now, if I am right that John has been transported into the day of the Lord, then from where he stood, if he looked forward and saw Christ standing in the midst of the golden candlesticks, then the church would still be present on the earth during the day of the Lord. But standing in the day of the Lord, if I am right in that, He's looking forward to the kingdom. But he had to turn around and look back to see the church on earth. Just, just throwing that out. There is no question that the seven golden candlesticks represent seven churches. That's what it says. Even more particularly, the seven local churches that are just named in the text. That's how the mystery is explained in verse number 20. That is very, very clear. You may remember, by the way, in the Jewish tabernacle and in the Jewish temple, that they had a golden lampstand with seven branches. So there is an obvious parallel between the two. The difference is that the lampstand had a singular base and seven branches all part of it. But these are seven individual and separate candles sticks the churches stand individually so notice secondly what Jesus held look at verse 16 he had in his right hand seven stars come down to verse 20 the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches so the seven stars in the right hand of the Son of Man are interpreted in verse 20 as the angels of the seven churches. Do you see that? Yeah. Stars are the angels of the seven churches. Nothing could be clearer. The candlesticks are churches and the stars are the angels of the churches. What could be clear is what do the angels represent? <laughs> the stars are angels, but who are the angels? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of guesses. The first guess is that angels are angels. It's a strictly literal interpretation that stars are a symbol for angels and that angels are to be taken literally. And if you wanted to take that point, then you could say, well, angels, they do have a keen interest in prophetic events and they do learn revelation from God's word and they have been assigned as guardians to individual Christians, none of which has absolutely anything to do with that verse, nothing, nothing. 
Someone else will say, well, Michael the archangel, he stood in heaven for the nation of Israel. It's not unreasonable to think that individual churches have angels standing in heaven as our representative. And every other place in the book of Revelation that you read, angels, angels are angels. So why would it not be literal angels this time? But there is a problem. And the problem is if these letters are written by John to literal angels, then how was John supposed to get the message to them? And if Christ wanted to give a message to angels, why does he need to go through John? They're in heaven around the throne. You closer to him than John is. And if the letter is addressed to angels, why is it sent to churches? And how is an angel to be blamed for the defects of the churches? I don't think angels means angels. I think it's a symbol. So somebody else said, no, no, it's not angels. It, it, it's pastors. Angels are pastors is what they are. That's the most common interpretation. The stars represent angels and the angels represent the pastors of these churches. Because after all, Jude talks about wandering stars, false preachers that are wandering stars. And then Daniel talks about ministers that shine as the stars. So it must be pastors. But there is a problem. To begin with, if angels are pastors, then one symbol is interpreted with another symbol. Follow me, follow me, stay awake, follow me. If, if the stars are angels, then the Lord represents the symbol of the stars with something that are angels, right? But if the stars are angels and angels are pastors, then would it not have been simpler to say that stars are pastors and just bypass the angel? Yeah. We are interpreting a symbol with a symbol. Yeah. I, I don't think that it is pastors and I have a whole lot of reasons for that. There are other terms for a pastor, bishop, elder, shepherd, pastor. So why would Christ bypass those terms and come up with a brand new one? So somebody else says, well, angels are messengers. Great men that I love, Clarence Mark and C.I. Schofield, John Wolver, they all said that angels represent human messengers. They have visited John from Ephesus and John gives them this letter to spread to the churches. So when it talks about angels, it's talking about messengers that have come to see him. I don't see any evidence for that. And by the way, he is in exile. Exile. Yeah. So having visitors would kind of defeat the purpose of that being in exile. Do you not yeah. think? Yeah. I don't think that it is messengers. Somebody said the angels are representatives, spiritual counterfeits, counterparts to the church in heaven. Not, a, not an ounce of Bible to that, but what a wonderful idea. So, so when you cannot determine, you can't decide, you always call your preacher friends and you ask them. So I called Brother James Knox. Pastor Brother Knox, deep mystery. I need you to sob for me. I'm going to stand before my people and I'm going to present this mystery and they're all going to be on the edge of their seat wanting to know what it is. Tell me, who are the angels? Oh, his answer helped my heart. It helped me. 
He said, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. And I concluded that he and I were both right. Ain't nobody knows who they are. I said all of that to say this. In Bible study, sometimes you have to be content to let God know some things that you don't know. You're not going to be able to solve every mystery. Now you take a guess. Pastors, angels, messengers, representatives, or make something else up. It doesn't matter. But son, I think that when we get to heaven, we think that God is going to reveal all of these mysteries to us. And certainly are, are some things that he's going to reveal to us. But I think that there are even some things that he's not going to tell us because it just doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, we're going to get to heaven one day and we are going to discover gap or no gap. <laughs> Oh, we gonna settle it then? Oh, we might get to heaven and discover it don't really matter. Well, where Jesus stood and what Jesus held, and then how Jesus looked, how Jesus looked. Now, now I'm not gonna go through this. He goes through this vision. He describes how these clothed with a garment down to the foot, gird about the paps with a golden girdle. That, that's a, uh, they, they would wear a, a, a belt or a girdle around their waist and they would draw up the robe when they're running or working. That's not the picture here. This is more like a sash. The paps is the breast, the chest area. And I think it's, a, it's over his shoulder, kind of like a, a banner. And, and then he talks about his head and his hair is like white, like wool, as white as snow, eyes as a flame of fire, feet like in the brass, there's judgment all in that, as if they burned in the furnace, his voice as the sound of many waters. Tomorrow evening, my wife and I fly into Buffalo, do this couple's retreat, and uh, I'm doing the couple's retreat, she's going along for the ride, but you ever been to Niagara Falls? You ever been on that boat to go into the falls? The roar, the roar of those waters going over the falls. That's what I think of when it says the voice is the sound of many waters. It says in verse 16, he has his right hand seven stars out of his mouth on a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. It takes a whole message to describe that vision. But this is how Jesus looked. But let me finish tonight with what Jesus said. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. Now, it's too simplistic, but to be first means nobody came before you. And to be last means ain't nobody coming after you. It means you have no predecessor and you have no successor. No one can say they got here before you, and no one can say that they will outlast you. First and last. I am he that liveth. Such a simple statement, but there ain't no other God that can say that. I am he that liveth and was dead. I love that. Not many people can say back when I used to be dead. Back in my dead days. No. He said, I am living and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. 
Oh, every religion follows a leader who was living but is now dead. Christianity is founded upon one who died and is now living. I know it's a Wednesday night. We're not supposed to preach. It's boring Bible study. That's a good verse right there. Christianity is a resurrection religion. Remove the resurrection and you have destroyed Christianity. The empty tomb is the Father saying amen to the cross. Live forevermore, meaning I'll never be dead again. <laughs> and when he conquered death, he conquered it for you and me. Because he got out of the grave. I'm sure that one of these days I will come out of the grave. I've probably given you this illustration. If I have, you act like I haven't. There's a piece of music used in the armed forces that marks the end of the day. Taps. Signals the end of life. 24 notes, four tones, three breaths, one There's another piece of music, another rendition, rendition that signals the beginning of the day. Reveille. 24 notes, four tones, three breaths, one minute. Four notes played differently. One of them, end of day, end of life, it signals morning, morning. Another one played at the beginning of the day and it signifies morning. There's one difference just to you that is missing. And God will one day take you and I out of mourning in this life into a land of endless mourning. So my mom has cancer. We're going to get more consultation at MD Anderson. A senior saint in our church has dementia and cancer. And taps his playing. And the doctor said yesterday that the baby will probably not survive. And taps his playing. There's a lot of mourning yeah. in this life, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> but because of the resurrection, yeah. I'm alive forevermore. Have the keys of hell and of death. Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrected Christ. In this life you can have mourning. Joy. Even though you are in mourning. You can have revelry in your heart. Even when there's taps playing in your life. I've used this as a Funeral, I know. But January 29, 1965, Winston Churchill, the lion of Great Britain, died. Winston Churchill planned his funeral out, everything that he wanted during that funeral, and I come to piano. They rolled him in to that state funeral, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And at the end of the service, it was all done. That a lone bugler up way at the top of the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral playing taps in the day, in the life. And as the last mournful note of taps 
echoed through the chambers of St. Paul's Cathedral. There was another bugler on the other end of the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And he began to play Reveille. Because Churchill said, I don't want the last note of my life to be taps. I want it to be Reveille. But for you and I, no matter what we go through in life, in the morning that life gives us, I want you to know that the last note of our life will not be tapped, signaling the end of life. It will be reveling, signaling the beginning of a brand new day. <laughs> I am alive. What a glorious, rapturous vision of Christ. We'll get to the tribulation. We'll get to the seals of the dragons. But for now, but for now, to see him. Yeah. I imagine John sitting on that island, perhaps a little discouraged and sure of what his fate would be. But he turns to see the voice and he sees Christ like he has never seen him before. Yeah. No wonder John says, I fell at his feet as dead. And none of us can imagine what it would be like the first time that we set eyes on Christ. It'll be far more glorious. It'll be far more rapturous than anything we've ever imagined. And at that moment, we will know with all of our heart that every trial, that every sorrow, that every tear, that every hardship is over, that whatever causes our tears now will be wiped away in that moment. What a vision of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight and the few minutes that we've had in it. Oh, to see you. To see you. It is so easy to see the sorrows and the troubles and the trials. We're careful not to dwell upon it, not to bemoan our lot in life, but to look to you. We long for that glorious day far more glorious than we can ever imagine. We see you. And when we first set eyes on you, we will know then that everything will be okay. Strengthen our hearts tonight through your word, I pray. In Jesus' name and amen.